Hi, this is Will Page, co-presenter of the podcast Bubble Trouble with Richard Kramer, the former chief economist at Spotify and the author of Tarzan Economics. You're listening to Your Morning Coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etcher. Weekly music news for the new music business. Billboard explains why concert tickets are so expensive. For music business worldwide, it's official. New music is shrinking in popularity in the United States. Also from Music Business Worldwide, how Fortet versus Domino points to our industry's profit share future. And yet another from Music Business Worldwide on SoundCloud's new deal with Warner Music or why the debate over fan-powered royalties is more complicated than fairness. Boy, Jay, we have got so much to cover today. Lots of stuff. Yes, We're sir. talking tickets. We're talking new royalty ways of paying royalties. So much. And so why don't you kick back, everybody, relax, because Jay and I will wax poetic right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. 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 Standing by. Your morning coffee. The weekly music news. For the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, how about that? That was Will Page that that gave us our intro yeah. today, which was lovely. And boy, what a treat it was to chat with him on that sure special was. edition of the of uh, our podcast. And uh, yeah. I learned so much whenever he's in the room. Oh, you and me both. And if you haven't read the book Tarzan Economics, we highly recommend it. And Mike, I think you were saying last week, you know, there's certain books that you just have to have on your desk if you're in the music yes. business. The the Donald Passman comes to mind. Uh, mm-hmm. The Brayback Brothers have an amazing, amazing book. Uh, Mike Warner's uh, Work Hard, Playlist Hard, I think deserves to be on that list. But you had mentioned, you know, you'd be remiss without having this book on your desk. Oh, it, it, it's a must have. And, you know, and he, the guy's an economist, <laughs> you know, and, and he's also a musician. And so he, he has such a, an interesting perspective, a, a learned perspective. And, and like we talked about in the podcast, and I know you're a huge fan of Freakonomics and that, that book, whenever that came out, 15 somewhat years ago, um, it was such an interesting book in terms of the understanding of economics and the and the the broad strokes with which economics can explain certain behaviors and things. Right. 
outside of typical business things that we think of for economics. And, yeah. um, but, but Will is, is cut from that same, uh, same pattern in terms of, of using economics in, in a much more, I want to use the word friendly because I studied yeah. economics in college and it's, it's dry, it's dense, it's boring. And yet, yeah. and Will brings the fun to economics. He does. And you do too. I mean, what, what I've learned from you and Will is I used to think of economics as being about money and financial markets. And of course that's part of it, but it's so much more as you've, uh, pointed out about what motivates people. What are those incentives? What drives people to do certain behaviors? And it also takes things that you think are a certain way and really shows you that they are not. And yes. so I, I highly recommend Tarzan Economics. And also, I don't miss an episode of Bubble Trouble, which is uh, yeah. his podcast with Richard Kramer. And the first time I listened to it, I thought, oh, this is going to be tough to get through because these are the big brain guys and this is going to be, but it was snarky. It was funny. And they had on this woman from financial times and I listened to that podcast twice and I never listened to a podcast twice. There was just so much information in there and it's just, it was just a joy. So bubble trouble, Tarzan economics. Thank you, Will. We really appreciate it. All good. Yeah. 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 And it was a, it was a, like I said, it was a real treat to interview him and spend some time with him. And I hope one of these days I can actually meet him yeah. in the flesh, you know, and yeah. he's, he's a, he's, as we keep saying, he's so kind of snarky and cheeky. He's <laughs> right. He's a riot. He's an absolute riot yeah. to, to chat with. So what a treat it was. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Jay, so much to talk about today. And, uh, before we get started, I say we talk about our sponsors because without our sponsors, we could not do the show. And we are Good so idea. blessed to have the the folks that we have. Uh, the Your Morning yes, Coffee sir. podcast is brought to you by our friends at Bandzoogle. Built by musicians, for musicians, Bandzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in. Hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan base and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to Banzoogle to try it for free for 30 days and use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, and get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's Banzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. Yeah, and, and you know, speaking of Banzoogle, I just put together a quick little website for a publicist friend of mine, Kim Britton. You may remember mm -hmm. Kim from, I remember she worked Kim. with Lincoln Park for like nine years. She worked with one of my favorite Americana artists, uh, Todd Snyder, uh, for many years. Anyway, mm -hmm. we collaborate on projects together and it only took me like 90 minutes and I put together this website uh, for Kim, just kimbritton.com uh, and did that with uh, Banzoogle. So not only are we uh, you know, thrilled to have them as a sponsor, <laughs> we actually use it, right? Yeah, Same with the rest of these like HypeBot, you know, since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music business and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It's edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton. Thank you, Bruce. With help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. And another thing that we use almost every day is Bands in Town. Over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages uh, from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans. 
managers, labels, agencies, and artists across our access, sorry, their own dashboard to manage and promote tour dates across all platforms. So sign up for that Bands in Town artist community at communityartistbandsintown.com. Indeed, indeed, indeed. And, you know, as we sit here, as July is leaving, uh, we, we're, the summer is, is, is going fast. Um, yeah. And uh, in, at the end of October, there's going to be Music Tectonics is going to come to Los Angeles. And you've got something going on there, if I'm not mistaken, Jay. Yeah, I'm going to host a, a panel. I'm going to moderate a panel there. But I, I go to Music Tectonics. Um, the first year it was in person. Then, of course, with the pandemic, it was not. And now it is again. And so the Music Tectonics Conference is uh, its going to be in Santa Monica, October 25th uh, through the 27th. And they have early bird pricing. So if you purchase your ticket before, you know, like August 11th, uh, you save, save a chunk of change. There you go. Absolutely. And the man hosting that uh, that. Uh that event there over at Music Tectonics. Jay Gilbert, of course, he's the co-founder of music and marketing, of music marketing and strategy company Label Logic. He's the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music Groups. And you can't forget Fox Home Entertainment as well. And just a chippy and groovy dude. <laughs> and this guy right here is Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. Yes, indeed. And Jay and I sure look forward to every, in this case, we usually do it on Saturdays. We are, it's, yeah. it's Saturday today as we were recording this, and uh, it never gets old. It's so fun. And it's wow. literally, we we chatted for 45 minutes before we hit record. And Almost every week. The way, that's the way we roll. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you say we jump into the stories, Jay? And uh, Well, the first before one... we do, just really quickly, okay. I, I do want to dive into that first one, but you know, you and I hit record um, after we've had a chance to kind of catch up, and you, you were telling me about a a show that you went to recently. Tell, tell our audience about that. Oh, yes. I went and saw the zombies last night. It's the time of the season. They were just fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And... Uh, it's it's one of those acts that I've been meaning to see. Um, they came through town, gosh, it was like two years ago, I think, and I was out of town, so I had to miss that show. Um, but, you know, they've just great songs. As a keyboard player, Rod Argent, the keyboard player and principal songwriter, I'm a huge fan of his. So I saw them last night. They were drop-dead fantastic. They sounded really? awesome. Um, and I looked it up, and those guys are 77 years old. The singer Colin Bluntstone, he has not missed... Uh, you know they sing it in the original key, and those, there's some high stuff going on. And and if as you know, uh, Rod Argent uh, after the Zombies broke up, he started another band called Argent. They had a huge hit called Hold Your Head Up, yeah. and um, <clears throat> that was sung by a different person. And Colin Blundstone sang it last night, and it's a high song as well. Yeah, it's not an and easy song to sing. Not an easy song to sing, and boy, he hit it, and it was just they were just fantastic, and so. You know, it's one of those times when you see your idols and they don't disappoint. And it was yeah. just so fun. And the crowd was going nuts. A super multi-generational audience. And oh, it was lovely. Absolutely lovely. But as we roll into our first song, we're going to talk about ticket prices. And so in this particular case, I bought tickets that were 68 bucks. 
and the additional fees were another 25 each on top of that. 25 bucks for a total of $50. Wow. And, you know, I don't mind paying a little bit of money for, for everybody to make some money. But, you know, that's whatever that is in a percentage, I mean, that's probably 40%. That's excessive. Like that. That's yeah. excessive. And I'm glad you and brought that up. I can't think up. of a better, better lead into our story than yeah. that. I'm glad you brought that up because our first story is uh, from Billboard, but it's actually a video and it's part of a series that they have um, called Billboard Explains. And you need to have Billboard Pro uh, a subscription to get to it, which we do and we're huge fans of. Um, but we did want to talk a little bit about this for those that don't have this because it's such a hot topic right now. So again, the headline is Billboard Explains Why Concert Tickets Are So Expensive. And this is by Taylor Mims. Um, Taylor heads up Billboard Special Features and all those cool power lists that we put in your morning coffee. Oh, yeah. So good. Great stuff. Right? Love yeah, that. Absolutely. So, so this latest installment breaks down... Who gets a portion of concert ticket revenue and, and why these prices continue to rise? Yeah, exactly. So here's some highlights from the video. Uh, the highest grossing tour of this year so far is, you guessed it, Bad Bunny. No surprise. Almost $117 million so far on 575,000 tickets sold. Uh, Elton John's farewell tour is number two, by the way. Bad Bunny ticket prices surged under the new industry standard of Dynamic ticket pricing. There it is. He's definitely not alone. So what is dynamic ticket pricing? Who does your ticket money actually go to? And what's up with all those fees? Billboard explains. Right. So first, let's talk about the base ticket price. You know, this typically goes to renting the venue, marketing the show, production costs like backline, lights, staging. So, you know, and after a two-year break from touring, these costs are higher than ever. You know, the costs for fuel have skyrocketed and, and resources like trucks, you know, they're scarce because everybody's jumping back out on the road yes. at the same time. Exactly. So net profit is split between the artist and the promoter. So currently that typically looks like artists gets about 85% and the promoter gets about 15%. Note that 10 years ago, artists made much less, but with the business moving to streaming and artists making less money from their recordings, they've demanded more revenue from touring. Right. So how does a promoter make money? Okay, this, this is where some of those fees come into play that we're talking about. Charges like service fees and order processing fees and sometimes venues charge, you know, facility fees. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, exactly. As I turn the page. Um, but as we reported on Your Morning Coffee last month, new legislation in New York will require ticket sellers to show their fees up front and for resellers to reveal how much they originally paid for a ticket. The measure cuts out hidden fees and the so-called drip pricing strategy companies such as Ticketmaster often use to lure in consumers with one price only to tack on the higher dollar price at the end just before consumers buy their tickets. Yeah. So the new trend is really that dynamic pricing, you know, and what dynamic pricing is, it's, it's really that the, the, the price of the ticket is driven by demand, um, very similar to airline tickets and hotels. And there's some benefits to that. One of them is it helps to kind of keep tickets from ending up on that secondary market with services like StubHub and, and SeatGeek. 
Right. Artists like dynamic pricing because there's less pressure to sell out the show as they make more revenue from higher price seats closer to the stage. More demand equals higher prices. Concert tickets, tip, concert tickets typically cost more when they first go on sale and demand is high. So for the best price, experts say you should wait to get a lower price. Of course, you risk the show selling out and being forced to go to the secondary market if it does. Right. And damn there it, it lies I, rub. I, I've done that so many times. <laughs> Like, okay, I'm just going to wait, and I'm sure it'll work out. And then oftentimes, yeah, there I am writing a check for a couple hundred dollars a seat. So yeah, it's, it is so, it, it's, you know, it's, again, it's one of these things that it, it's, when you look back to, to when we were first started going to concerts, relatively speaking, concert prices have just skyrocketed. I mean, really, when you, when you compare it to like minimum wage or whatever kind of dollar amount you want to do. And so it was far, it was such a much better deal back in our, in the, in our days when we were young. But, you know, it's as, as the uh, article points out, this is really the principal revenue that for, for many artists and yeah. the money is just so good. Why the zombies still on the road? I assume because they can be and, and the money's great. And, right. And, and it's not you know, just the tickets. It's the other ancillary things like merch that go along with it. There are some yes. artists that are making an equal amount in merch every night that they are on, on ticket sales. But we've talked about how for especially for a developing and middle class artist with this pro rata model which we talk about every week and we will talk about it again this week that there isn't a ton of revenue for sales streams and downloads especially mm-hmm. downloads have all but gone away um, but and even with premium vinyl and some of those things really the revenue is coming from uh, the touring and I love this piece from Billboard because it really outlines you know because you and I talked about this McCartney show a few weeks ago how there's just no cheap uh, seats in you know SoFi Stadium which is this massive stadium and why can't mm-hmm. there be a seat that's priced for the common man and we had a a ton of mail from executives yes, saying did. this is why, you know, because if we offer this group of seats for a discounted price, then some of these secondary market players are just going to scoop them up and sell them for four times the the face value. The other side of this that I find really interesting is that in New York, you know, what, what we, you just touched on is that they're looking at passing laws that will help it. So you see what the base price is and what, before you even get into the uh, queue to you know buy your ticket, you know what all those add-ons are and who they're coming from, right? Because yeah. as you just pointed out, that's one example. I've seen tickets where it's almost like a line list of all these different things and where the fees equal the face value of, of the ticket. I do think yeah. that dynamic pricing is interesting in that those, you know, those hardcore fans are going to, you know, get the seats that they want if they're willing to pay for it. But the problem I see with that is that, is it making this really more just for the wealthy? And I love something that Billy Joel does at his concerts. He got tired of having that first row or so with a bunch of rich people that didn't really care to be there and would talk during the show and leave early and all of that. So he started scooping those up and then going, having people on his staff go back in the venue and finding people that are hardcore fans, but are in the cheap seats and bringing them down. And I just love that. 
I do too. I do too. But I got to tell you, you know, this is not unique to the ticket industry. I mean, it's certainly something that that we are are painfully aware of. But you know, I was I'm trying to book a vacation, and when you go on like VRBO or Airbnb, they do the same thing. You know, it's there's a price, and then suddenly you get down, and you're like wait a minute. And, and it'll be, of course, there's some sort of local fees, cleaning fees, all this other stuff. And, and suddenly it's not, that's not what you're paying for per night, you know, that, that initial price you saw. And even if my mortgage, I, I, I logged on to, to pay the mortgage on their website and there's a $10 convenience fee for me using their website. And I'm like, F you guys. So now I pay through my bank and it's like, I'm on your website and that's a $10 convenience. Well, most people won't notice and they'll just pay it. That's exactly right. They'll just pay it. And let's say, you know, even if they have, I don't know, 10,000 mortgages that they represent, suddenly at $10, you know, a piece, you're talking some substantial amount of money, a grand a month. Um, so it's it's the it's that continual chipping away of everything. It, it's it's not only in tickets, although it's particularly egregious in in the world of tickets, but it exists everywhere. You know, yeah. everybody is trying to take a little little bit extra, and yeah. here we are with tickets. But in my case, you know, a, a good forty percent for service fees. Boy, that's that's harsh. That's rough. Yeah, and you it's mentioned really when we were growing up. You know, I used to go to every concert that came through town when I was in high school. I mean, almost every single one. And I could afford to. Um, Just out of high school, you know, these bands like Queen and Cheap Trick and Kiss and all these bands were coming through through town. I would just go and wait in line at, you know, uh, wherever they sold those different tickets. A lot of times it was a department store. And when yeah, they opened, I was just I'd thinking be, that it's so funny you yeah. mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. I, think I used to like go to the Nordstrom Broadway. Or Myron Frank or whatever it was. Yes. And I remember getting those hard tickets and they were minor fees. Like if the ticket was $15, it might be a dollar convenience fee or a 50 cent convenience fee. It, it wasn't like it is today where, you know, like that drip thing that we were talking about where they surprise you at the very end when you've got mm-hmm. all your information in, you're about ready to hit buy, and then it's like, oh, yeah, there's these fees too. It's like, come on. I know. it. It's really... And again, I, you know, I, I understand that people need to make money, but it just seems so egregiously expensive at the moment. But, you know, it's... I don't see it changing anytime soon, and I, yeah. I will continue to go to shows because... I want to see some of these acts, but uh, you know, but it's again, I'm I'm well into adulthood with a with a a decent income, you know. It it really hurts the young fans and the yeah. the people that 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 are that are the super fans, but are at that stage in life where they don't have that kind of money, yeah. and they really have to moderate how many tickets they buy because it's yeah. gotten so darn expensive. I was having so, lunch yesterday with my friend Brandon, and we were talking about how we're so fortunate being in the music business for decades and all of these shows that we got to go to that we didn't have to pay for, um, mm-hmm. that we were either put on the guest list or the record company bought the tickets. Not all of them were free. I mean, they were paid for just not by us. And also being a photographer, I've shot hundreds of shows, you know, from, from the pit and you get so spoiled that yeah. then a show does come to town and both this happened to both Brandon and I, we, go to purchase the tickets and we're like, oh, you know, it's like sticker shock. You're like, oh my God, really? That's how much that costs? 
Wow. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Right. No, and that's right. And that's, by the way, is another thing that, from what I hear from friends that are still working at labels, that used to be a real common thing in our day, which is there were big ticket buys, comps, and it, it wasn't hard to get tickets internally, you know, and and go to shows, and and that and that that that's not like that anymore. No, you know, I'm sure they 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 do some minor ticket buys, but it's not right. like it used to be. And even it's when I was be. leaving the major label ecosystem before I started my own thing, it was tightened up so much that as an employee, you know, I was on the list and could go, but I couldn't bring a guest or I'd have to pay uh, for that guest. So anyway, that I thought that was a really, really great um, video feature um, from Billboard, the series. It's a great series called Billboard Explains. And I'm telling you, you know, it, it really does make sense if you're really into this uh, new music business to subscribe to things like Rolling Stone Pro and Billboard Pro. Yeah, it costs a little bit of money, but it's, it's so worth it, uh, the things that you get out of it. Just a nice place. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then again, we, and it's we live in wonderful times when you have, for a relatively small amount of money, you can get these sort of inside um, tracks on information and yeah. details that that are super important to the knowledge of how the industry works. And yeah, this, yeah. this is a great service. Very yeah, I well g- worth it. I want to give a shout out to uh, music business worldwide because for you know, it's so rare for us to cover like three of their pieces in, in one episode, but they're not super long uh, pieces, but they're really great. And I've said this before, you know, like this first one is written by Tim Ingham, who runs Music Business Worldwide. And I listen to his podcast, never miss an episode. Um, I'm not quite convinced yet that Tim is not a robot. Um, he he uh, <laughs> could be human. Hopefully I'll, I'll get to meet him sometime. Um, but He's flawless. I mean, in his reporting and in, in his podcast, there's no ums, there's no mistakes. He's just, he's like Spock. And I really dig this guy and I dig his reporting and, and the way that they look into the data. And the, the headline of this piece is, it's official, new music is shrinking in popularity in the United States. And this picks up on what you and I talked about last week, which was that new mid-year report from Luminate, formerly MRC Data, Nielsen Music, the artist formerly known as. You know, and it basically showed that total album consumption and current recorded music in the U.S., right? This is all about the U.S., that it fell 1.4% in volume versus the equivalent metric from the same period in 2021. And it's been quite the buzz this last week in the music industry about um, how catalog is so big and, and still growing and how some of the new release metrics are you know, falling a little bit. But the only thing I would add to this is let's let's not forget what catalog is. You know, they determine that it's 18 months or older. And a lot of this is what we call carryover. A lot of this is these things that continue to sell. They continue to stream. These people are continue to tour. And so it, I don't know, you and I talk about this sometimes. Should it be based on velocity and not by 18 months? I don't know. But let's take catalog that term catalog with a grain of salt here absolutely and we will continue to talk about that because it does to me it just seems like 18 months is far too recent to to consider that catalog and you and i both have we've mentioned many times you and i both worked in catalog uh, for major labels and um 
especially now with with how fast trends happen and things, it just seems like it takes a long time sometimes to even find out about artists because there's just such a, a, a an overwhelming amount of new music to 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 parse through, and eighteen yeah. months can go like that, and suddenly, I mean, to me, it seems like five years. It, it, it's like considerably further out to me to what catalog. I would consider true catalog because like you say, you know, there's, there's just this kind of tale that can happen with, with, with acts. And especially when you talk about things, um, of course, film and TV is so important for, um, for, for the music business in general. But, you know, when you look at the production cycle, so, so a new artist, they have a new album can come out, they can get a song in, in a movie, let's say, but sometimes the production of a movie can be 18 months. So that movie doesn't hit until 18 months after that album is released. Well, is that a catalog all of a sudden? Well, not really to my way of thinking. Right. So right. I don't know. I think, I think we've got a long ways to go to really accurately. And I'm not sure what the number is, but it, Sure as heck, eight eighteen months to my yeah, way of thinking. I, I agree. I, I would just point to two albums that both came out on November nineteenth, twenty twenty one. So they came out at the the end of last year, and that's Adele thirty and and Kanto. You know the Disney uh, that huge uh, soundtrack. So you know we're looking at those as you know they're eighteen months old. Are they catalog? They're still streaming and selling like crazy, right? Um, so I don't know. I think your I think your point is well taken. I would like to see something based on velocity. So even if it's been out six months, if it's if it's dead, it, it goes into catalog. And then if something continues to just be a a powerful streaming or selling album, um, maybe that should you know it should be different. We'll we'll see. I think right now they have catalog and then they have deep catalog and carryover and all of these things, but they're really music industry terms. But the only mm. reason I bring it up is because this 1.4% drop uh, year over year in total album consumption and current recorded music, you know, from MRC, which is now Luminate, that, that total al- album consumption, what they call a TAC metric, combines all on-demand streams, plus all downloads, even though that's not much, plus all album sales on digital and physical format. So that's all of that. And that formula mm-hmm. for TAC, you know, that's, uh, we, we've talked about this, I think, last week, you know. So an album sale, uh, according to, you know, SEA and, and TEA, so track equivalent, album stream equivalent album 1250 premium streams so if they paid for it but that equals one album but it's 3750 if it's from the ad supported uh stream and then you know like we mentioned last week that's 10 digital downloads equals kind of one one album so that's that's kind of what makes up that tac yeah and it's again a lot of the stuff like you said is kind of it's industry stuff. So who who really cares? But I think it's important to, yeah, it, it's it, it's this eighteen month thing is really a holdover. I mean, going back decades, right? This is yeah. this 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 number, and I think it really does need to be kind of revisited in terms and just 
kind of recalibrated for the current music industry because it's 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 so dramatically different than it was in the physical era. Yeah. And it's it's just time to really reevaluate. And I don't know who's going to do that, you know, is is it right. is it Billboard is it What's you the know, motivation? Who's, yeah. who, who's the king of the of the definitions of what it is? So um, yeah. I think it comes to Billboard and it comes to, you know, some of the uh, majors if they even see a need for this because the bottom line is yes current dropped 1.4% but the combined business grew you know 9.3% and catalog grew by 14% year over yeah. year when you're looking at those that that TAC chart yeah yeah and that means that catalog is you know over 72% of the business so but again catalog is 18 months or older and you've got Adele and Encanto and some other things in there uh, that are being considered catalog. And as I mentioned in, in this article, it says, isn't the first time that current music popularities has shrunk in real volume terms in the U.S.? Just the latest chapter in a post-COVID lockdown trend. Uh, Luminate's full-year report for 2021 showed that that, that uh, units of current music in the 12 calendar months of last year uh, was down 3.7%. So... This is, you know, this is kind of an ongoing thing. But again, it's sort of, to me, a, it, it even shines a brighter light on the fact that it, it probably should be revisited in terms of what the definition of that is. Not because it matters whether it's shrinking or growing, but because it's really not an accurate picture of what's going on out there, given the way music consumption is now, given the way it's a streaming business, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah. That's yeah. all I'm saying, Jay. Yeah, I get it. You know, I also think that one of the things I liked about this piece is that Music Business Worldwide crunched the numbers on the top 10 audio streaming tracks, you know, sort of, you know, so this mid-year mark, right? And they used uh, Luminate, MRC, you know, the artist formerly known as. And what they found is that the, the top 10 audio streaming tracks in the U.S. for the first part of 2022 cumulatively uh, over 1 billion streams. Right. And so they're looking at that as, OK, what are the top 10 tracks doing? You know, and it went from, you know, two point seven four billion versus three point eight one billion. So we're seeing that there is a decrease in that frontline brand new release. It's not a huge drop, but it is a drop and it's a trend. And I think that if you think about it, putting the marker aside of what you think catalog is catalogs proven catalog is catalog for a reason, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it's something that we're going to talk about continually over the next few months, weeks, years for sure. Um, <clears throat> but again, it's the changing face of, of how music is consumed and what people are listening to and how quickly trends can happen, but how long trends can continue. And I think that's the most important thing to kind of consider yeah. how this business has changed. And yeah, um, yeah it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I don't know, you know, we're going to keep talking about it. We, um, we sure are. And I, I just want to end it with, uh, at the end of the piece, they they pointed out a couple of things that I think are really important. One is that current music, if you're just talking about streaming, not downloads, not physical, mm -hmm. you know, CD, vinyl, if you're just talking about streaming, um, that it fell 2.6% year over year. If you look at video streaming, that fell over 10% year over year. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's because people don't have the attention span so much anymore, and it's all that 
TikTok, and now you know we we learned last week that Facebook is really going to revamp um, their whole service and focus on short form video um, starting this last Thursday, and then and then the last thing is that overall on demand audio streaming, you know that was up by almost twenty five percent year over year, so. Um, pretty big growth in the industry because of streaming, um, but it looks like it's a lot of it is catalog and carryover. So we'll we'll leave it at yeah. that. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, let's then jump over to the next story from our good friends at Music Business Worldwide. How Fortet versus Domino points to our industry's profit share future. The profit share future, Jay, and that's kind of been something we've been talking about also for the last couple of weeks. And yeah. uh, this this article right here is is actually uh, it's an op ed coming from UK based Hunter Giles, uh, who co founded and leads Infinite Catalog, which is a royalty accounting software and service company. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, talking about kind of how things are are changing out there in terms of the the profit share future. And as it starts, it says profit share record deals, sometimes called 50-50 deals in reference to their most common form, have been used by indie labels for decades. Compared with major label-style Kanye tweet-worthy 80-page long deals of old, they also happen to be perfectly suited to an era of rapidly expanding ways to earn money from music, be it from streaming, gaming, the metaverse, or for whatever. He said, right, for evidence right. that profit share deals are indeed the way of the future and how their continued adoption could yield a more transparent and profitable industry, look no further than the recent Fortet versus Domino dust-up. Yeah, and you and I talked about this a little bit because this this was a groundbreaking thing in that, you know, Fortet was saying, you know, like, well, wait a second. Let's take a look at this. What is a stream? And, and I'll just read you this, this quote from him, which kind of uh, encapsulates all of it. He said that they have recognized my original claim that I should be paid 50% royalty on streaming and downloads and that they shouldn't be treated as a license rather than the same as a CD or vinyl sale. And that, that was uh, tweeted out by Kieran Hebden, uh, who is a.k.a. Fortet. So now they, they've said, okay, you're right. It should be that. And it could be quite a big deal for the music industry to kind of switch over. Yes, it is. And it got me, you know, we, we kind of mentioned a film and TV. And ironically, that sort of contracts, because, you know, even even in our era, when, when a song is used in a TV movie or in a TV or a movie, typically that deal is structured far differently than regular royalties are, right? Even in the old contracts. And well, so, there's no statutory rate like for sync, right? So that's a yes, it's a negotiated rate. So mm-hmm. uh, I may get a million dollars for my sync because it's in a Microsoft commercial and you may get $7,000 because yours is in some small indie film. Right. But it was usually kind of split, whatever the income was, it was usually split between the label and, and the artist and same thing on the publishing side. So that was a much more kind of what we're talking about here. It's a, it was a much more fair way of divvying up those those funds. Um, as they, as they say, <clears throat> what's on display here is the tension between these old school contracts, yes. sometimes sometimes called royalty based or PPD deals, that were built for an analog world in the modern day environment. Uh, in the modern day environment we actually live in. So as they say, now strap in. 
It's about to get a bit wonky. Yeah. They said in the old school days, a royalty rate, and in this case of, of, of this artist is 18%, gets applied not uh, to the income actually collected by the label, but instead to a pre-agreed amounts called the published price to dealer or suggested retail list price. Remember that? The yeah, SRL. Sure do. This means the label can just track the units rather than all that pesky income, like 100 CDs sold, $10 PPD per CD, 18% equals $180 in royalties for the artist. Easy, right? The, the, the income actually collected by the label is, again, notably irrelevant to what's being accounted for on the royalty statement. These PPD deals, which we now refer to them as, make even less sense for digital income. And that's really right. the important thing to consider it's like this is old school numbers and right. remember they even had breakage in those oh yeah in those old contracts which yeah was this is how we ridiculous. grew up in the industry with these ppd deals and they, they talk about you know streaming basically changed all of it but it's not that simple because as you and i point out regularly that that pool of revenue uh, that comes in from streaming is not the same any given month it varies each nope. month and so it's a little bit more uh, complicated. And if you've ever seen statements, there are so many line items for all of the different types of streaming, whether it's a family plan or a free thing or ad supported or premium or, you know, a student plan. There's so many yeah. different things. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. As they say, so you can't really set a standard PPD amount, nor can you find a real quantity sold, and indeed there is no sale with streaming anyway. So labels end up applying the same 18% or similar royalty rate to the actual income collected after all, just like in a profit share deal where the rates are more typically around 50%. But boy, that ain't exactly fair. Mm. Um, so profit share tends to be a lot more equitable, not to mention transparent. The artist actually knows what the label is earning for their efforts. These characteristics would seem to be a nice fit for an increasingly artist-centric age. So, yeah. you know, if we if 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 we're heading towards that and that's certainly what happened to him, it just makes a hell of a lot more sense. It seems to be easier and it's gosh darn it, it's a hell of a lot more fair. Yeah. But you got to think there's going to be a little uh, a little friction there with a lot of, with certain companies to 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 accept these and to kind of move forward like that. Yeah, I, I, I think that this is going to lead us beautifully into our next story because, you know, as they end this piece, they say that the music industry's profit share future is already here, right? And you and I talk about this pro rata model versus user centric, which SoundCloud calls fan powered royalties. And mm -hmm. that just leads us beautifully into that discussion. Because now things are getting interesting with Warner Music kind of stepping in and trying this out through SoundCloud. Yes, it is. And I'm going to let you start that because I don't have it pulled up. Oh, no problem. So the headline, uh, again, this is Tim Ingham. Uh, thank you so much, Tim. Another great piece. Um, the headline is, On SoundCloud's New Deal with Warner Music, or why the debate over fan-powered royalties is more complicated than quote unquote fairness. And, you know, we talk about, I want, I want to go through it. They describe what user centric or fan powered is versus uh, pro rata. And, and I know we talk about it quite a bit, but it's so important. And what I love about this piece is it says, 
okay, that piece that you and I reported on last week from Media said that this could be a good thing for, you know, they did like 180,000 artists and they thought this could be a good thing. But what he's pointing out is there's winners and losers. And so losers. let me just tell the, the difference really quickly and then we'll jump in. The difference between fan-powered royalties, right, or user-centric versus mm-hmm. pro rata uh, payouts. Most streaming services continue to pay out on a pro rata basis. This sees this pool of royalty money generated from subscriptions into kind of this one big pot, and they pay out artists based on their share of total streams across a given month. So if you're, you know, and let's be clear, they're not typically paying labels, they're paying the rights holders, which is usually the label. So let's say the label goes from a 5% market share to a 10% market share, they're gonna get a lot more revenue from streaming, right? And then fan-powered royalties, that's, that's different. It sees the royalty amount generated for each individual subscription split exclusively between the artists that the owner of that subscription played that month. And I use this example all the time. You know, if I'm listening to one artist all month long with fan-powered royalties, they get my, they get my monthly fee. And, and Doja exactly. Cat and Lizzo and other people that I may not have listened to that particular month, they're not getting that. But that's not how it works today with Pro Rata. Right. So and so let's, let's, let's remember, just over a year ago, SoundCloud made a pioneering move. It transferred around 100,000 independent artists who were being paid on a Pro Rata basis to being paid on the old FPR, Fan Powered Royalties basis. It was able to do so because fairly uniquely at this point, SoundCloud is both a distributor services provider to these artists as well as a royalty-paying music streaming platform. So they are a little different. You know, yes. We're not really talking apples to apples. So, right. so that, that's first... Mentioned. We're, and then we're it's comparing Jane, apples to chainsaws, as my friend Jeff always To chainsaws, said. that's right. That's right. <laughs> or, or, yeah, for sure. And then, uh, as we, as Jay mentioned, so last week, uh, research from Media released a very interesting report with SoundCloud investigating the impact this switch to fan-powered royalties had on 118,000 independent artists now being paid via that model on the platform. It was largely full of praise, right, for fan royalties and its it was. future potential. Absolutely. And you and I dug into it, right? And we, we walked through it for our audience. And if you didn't hear last week, you should. It, it's a really, really good discussion, um, great piece. But the part that really, I think, got kind of glossed over there was that nearly half, well, 44%, of all of those artists who did that saw some revenue decrease. So it's, right. you know, it's a zero-sum game. Yes. So there are winners and there are losers. And as, as, as in this, it says, as an individual, this writer would love to see the music industry move to fan-powered royalty payout system. It is, when all is said and done, a fairer and less gameable way to pay artists than the current structure. So we're kind of talking about fair for artists, but also this kind of the, 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 the tricks and, and things that people are doing to kind of game the system. And that, that's, a, that's, a, that's an, a, a, a different thing to be talking about, but it's certainly important to consider because Absolutely. it is harder to game the system when you've got fan-powered royalties. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, but as they mentioned also, there are over 250 million tracks on SoundCloud and presumably the, the makers of just under half of those tracks stand to fiscally lose out from a switch to fan-powered royalties. So a bit of a buzzkill, perhaps. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> to say the least. That's right. Yeah. So media, the media report makes the case that for... <clears throat> 
certain types of artists that yeah. will lose out. And in this case, like Drake, Ed Sheeran, the Rihannans of the world, FPR provides better data about their biggest fans due to insights about individual subscriptions. So it suggests that even if, in this case, Drizzy took a financial hit from FPR streaming royalties, he could easily offset this by better monetizing his super fans using the fan-powered royalties data. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Are you buying that? I mean, that's that's. Uh, is that a consolation prize? I don't know. Is, I do. Um, I do buy that uh, to a certain degree. Um, I think that one of the things that's interesting about some of these streaming services is that they're getting closer and closer to letting music marketers, managers, labels, distribution, artists get a little closer to reaching those fans. We're not there yet. We can see some really mm -hmm. great insights. A lot of these DSPs have these amazing dashboards, Spotify for artists, Amazon Music for artists, Apple Music for artists, YouTube analytics, whatever it is. And we're getting closer and closer to learning about our fans. And then, you know, you've got some things, you know, like Spotify is, you know, testing out things like discovery mode, right? And marquee ads and we're getting closer. I would love to get to the point where it's similar to Spotify's fan firsts, where if I'm an artist, manager, representative, whatever it is, I can reach those super fans and I can tell them, you know, like, look, you, you are my top whatever fans and in, give them something for that. Engage mm -hmm. with them. Um, right now, you know, it's kind of like social media, you know, we're, we're disintermediated. There's that word again. Right. So I, I think that the, the bottom line here is that as they point out, if, if you're being paid a wage today and you were told you were going to be paid less, but we're also going to give you information that meant that you could make up some of that lost income, would you be delighted? And their, their response is, I'm guessing not. Yeah. And it, this article gets really interesting at the end. And so let, let's kind of talk about it. So it says, talking about this announcement that Warner Music Group has agreed to adopt fan-powered royalties for its artists on SoundCloud. It's, it's kind of intriguing. It says, credit is due to SoundCloud's team um, for successfully negotiating such an important test case for the adoption of fan-powered royalties. It's a big win for SoundCloud, big win for the pro-FPR argument. However, that nagging question remains. What happens when just under half of Warner Music Group's artist base begins to earn less money from an important streaming service? Yeah. Especially when the artists who will be earning less from the Switch are the superstars on which the Warner Music Group banks its business. We're talking Cardi B, Ed Sheeran, Dua Lipa, Lizzo, Megan the Stallion, the Stallion. These questions in this particular case might actually be moot. Sources suggest that such Warner artists who don't financially benefit from a switch to FPR will be protected by a minimum guarantee in the Warner Music Group SoundCloud deal. A minimum guarantee. This ensures they will be paid the same rate they should they would have been on a stream share basis. The now that's something that I don't remember reading anywhere else no. that there's this minimum guarantee. Yet so there's the a safety net. Yes, exactly. It says, yet the fact such a clause potentially is required in the first place spotlights the wider problem. FPR certainly is fair is fairer, less manipulable system for artists. It right. also happens to hit a lot of artists in the pocket during a macroeconomic inflationary crisis, no less. And so 
then they start talking about, they said, then there's the Universal Music Group problem. Warner Music Group, on a corporate level, may or may not see a switch to fan-powered royalties improve its market share in terms of streaming income. Kind of hard to say at this point. However, they say what we probably can say for sure is that Universal Music Group would lose out on such a switch if if it ever were to go industry-wide. So how is that possible? He says you only need to look at UMG's peerless dominance on streaming services last year to get the hint. So UMG had four of the top five global artists on Spotify in 2021, in case you're wondering, Taylor Swift, BTS, Drake, and Justin Bieber. Another of its artists, Olivia Rodrigo, released Driver's License. That was the most streamed song of 2021. And Rodrigo's Sour was Spotify's most streamed album of 2021. Right. They have pledged, you, they, Universal Music Group, have pledged to deliver a mid-20% annual EBITDA to its shareholders after going public back in September in the next few years. So the idea of UMG voluntarily agreeing to slice a chunk off its global streaming revenue market share therefore seems uh, unlikely. Yeah, well, let's talk about that because they make a really good point that Warner Music Group is, you know, this is basically kind of a trial, a test to see how it goes. And there is a safety net for those that if if they were going to make less that they're sort of protected here, but they're saying that with universal music group, with all of the success that they've had lately, it would be really tough because again, you know, 44% of those artists, they're going to have to tell, uh, you're making a little bit less. And they end the piece by saying, can you imagine telling Drake or yay, they're about to earn less money from streaming just because the man says so. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the Great way, piece. so there's a couple of things in this article that really I had not considered, nor had I heard about. So, um, you know, it, it's it really for me anyway. This article, more than anything, has really kind of thrown the monkey wrench into the whole fan-powered royalties discussion, yeah. and about its impact on some of these publicly traded companies, right. and and the impact on some of these superstar acts, right. and um. And like we talked about last week, that media piece was great, and it it got people talking about well maybe we should make this this change, but what this is kind of the balance to that piece in that yeah that's accurate, but let's consider that there are winners and losers. Right, and I don't know if you noticed if at the very bottom there is one comment. Yeah, from our friend Ari. Yes, indeed. And he said, to indulge in this analogy, the 44% of employees getting a pay cut make more money than anyone else in the company, and they have far more income streams than anyone else in the company, and all are multimillionaires. No, I don't feel bad for them, and yes, it's the right <laughs> thing to do. Yeah. So, Hat tip to uh, Ari Herstand. Um, check out his book about the new music industry. Um, we, we dig Ari, and I'm glad that he, uh, he added that little bit of... Uh, Spice. Yes, indeed, Spice. So, boy, that was a, it's a great article. Maybe the most important article this year, yeah. certainly this week, and in all of so these much. things to consider in fan-powered royalties. And, you know, these are publicly traded companies, and they've got a lot to consider when you're talking about major artists and, it's not that and simple. shareholders. Yeah. No, it's not that simple. It is not that simple. So, Jay, it's been uh, this whole thing is going to be fascinating as we cover this in the weeks to come, because, I mean, in many ways, 
there's a little bit of a leak in the dam right now. And um, but boy, there are just some some implications that certainly I hadn't considered. And, yeah, me um, too. It, it makes it some some worthy to be conversations for the future. With right. Now. You know, as Rachel Maddow says, watch this space. Um, tune in because each week we've just had this embarrassment of riches of these really great, you know, um, analysis and stories. And we're finally getting to that point in the music industry where we're looking very closely and publicly about things like what songwriters are paid and what streaming pays out and touring and ticket prices. And it's just amazing that we're making some progress in a business that, you know, we've been doing some of the same things for decades, if not a century. Yes, yes, absolutely. But, um, but it's just, it's, it's a healthy business and that's, what's exciting. And it's, that's, I don't see that changing in the future. Um, but how that money is divvied up and how it's Mm. distributed and how much money comes out of our wallets is a topic that we will continue to cover for many, many weeks and months to come. Exactly. So as we wrap up this edition, I do want to thank Banzoogle, Hypebot and Bands in Town, our lovely sponsors for helping us do the show. And, uh, Jay, what do you say we say toodaloo? There you go. On behalf of Jay Gilbert and myself, we certainly appreciate you listening in every week. This has been the Your Morning Coffee Podcast, and Jay and I will see you next week. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.